and welcome, I'm Vernon Mann. Step back with me to the late 1970s and join me in Beirut where I'm covering the Lebanese Civil War for UK TV. I'm about to head south to find out if the Israelis really are withdrawing their forces from Lebanon after occupying parts of the country for several years. Our driver Ali is outside the hotel, the Commodore, waiting for us to appear. He's been there since first light, as he is every day. Unless fighting is so intense in his neighbourhood, he can't get out. He's a lovely guy, not the sharpest driver on the block perhaps, but loyal and trustworthy. Quite short and thick-set, his face featuring a very prominent hooked nose. He says he's very proud of it, and so he should be. We think of Ali as family. He's not allowed into the hotel, but we have been to his house for tea, meeting his ultra-shy wife and his nine, yes, nine boys, each the clone of their father, noses and all. We pay Ali a hundred US dollars a day, good money in the late 70s, but Ali's around from dawn until we tell him we're done for the day. Sometimes, unforgivably, we forget to dismiss him and get a note in the bar asking, I go now? Ali, a Muslim, doesn't speak good English. I don't speak good Arabic, so sometimes we misunderstand each other, so far without dire consequences. But Ali knows his city, the back alleys, the escape routes. You tell him where you want to go, and he takes you there, regardless of the dangers he might face. Can you imagine a London cabbie doing that? Do we feel guilty at exposing this great guy to life-threatening situations? To be honest, we don't. We're too caught up in the excitement of the moment to worry about the possibility of nine orphaned boys. In retrospect, I guess that's a horrible and uncaring admission. Ali is one of maybe half a dozen drivers on the Commodore Hotel taxi rank, unofficially contracted to various news outfits from the American, UK and European TV networks, risking their lives, like him, for a hundred a day. They're not all so good or reliable as Ali. A couple of drivers are renowned for their unreliability, speeding back to the hotel at the first sign of trouble, sometimes leaving journalists behind to fend for themselves. So, we set off to monitor the Israelis, organised withdrawal, not a retreat. They'd made their point, taken casualties, shown their strength. Time to go home. We drive towards Sidon, Lebanon's ancient third biggest city, 50 clicks south of Beirut. Normally a busy commercial centre surrounded by citrus and banana plantations, now a victim of war, life in limbo as malicious battle for control. When you report from places like this, all you can do is report what you see, what you come across along the way. You can't get an overall political picture. So us firemen reporters ship our stories back to base, they get a showing on the news, followed by the diplomatic editor who links my report with others from the region and explains how our offering adds to the big picture. And in the Middle East, the canvas is broad. Meanwhile, the Israelis leave an easy trail to follow. In one village, 17 cars flattened by their tanks, a dozen homes razed to the ground. A couple of miles on, villagers are burying a young man they said had been shot by Israeli soldiers for shouting at them from his balcony. It's no wonder they're trigger-happy. They've lost a couple of troops in suicide car bomb attacks, one car driven by a girl in her teens. They've been attacked by Muslim Hezbollah guerrillas too. We drive on through the orange groves and right into trouble. Not for one moment did it occur to us that we might catch up with the Israeli convoy. We'd made a point of going slow, stopping often to film bits and bobs that might fit into our story. 
but caught up we have. We round a bend and there, just 50 yards ahead, is an Israeli tank, the convoy rearguard, nervous Israeli soldiers pointing their guns and the barrel of their tank at us. Ali had slowed down but is still moving towards the tank, his brain probably frozen with fear. Stop! I scream, stop! Ali's face is white in shock, but he does as he's told and jams on the brakes. Now reverse very, very slowly, I say. Very, very slowly. Which he does, muttering Arabic words I don't understand. I think of putting my hand out of the window and into the air as a gesture of peace and goodwill, but think better of it. I'm very aware of the suicide car bomber attacks and truly expect to be blasted into oblivion at any second. It's probably only minutes, but it seems a lifetime before we gingerly back around the bend and out of sight, which doesn't mean, of course, that the Israelis won't come after us. We listen with relief as the noise from the convoy and our tank slowly fades away. Shaken, we get out of the car and sit by the side of the road for a while, discussing the closeness of the encounter the foolishness, perhaps, of our news-gathering venture, and pick oranges from the trees. An orange has never tasted so sweet. So what to do? Head back to the hotel? Or carry on and see what we can get? It's still only early afternoon, after all. The unwritten rules in a dodgy situation are that if you have enough pictures in the can to tell the story, you turn around and go home. The other unwritten rule is that if one of your crew doesn't think it's safe to go forward, nobody goes forward. We have a brief discussion. Poor Ali isn't part of it. We don't have quite enough material to make a report. We vote to carry on. If we can establish the Israelis have withdrawn from Tyre, the southernmost Lebanese city, we have a strong story. So we drive, with extreme caution and not a little apprehension, towards Tyre, one of the oldest continually inhabited cities in the world, once a powerful Phoenician centre which founded rich colonies like Cadiz and Carthage. Today, as Sidon, a battleground featuring the Muslim militia Hezbollah and associated groups, the remnants of the Palestine Liberation Army, the PLO, and Christian militias who'd thrown in their lot with Israel at this particular time. As we reach the outskirts of Tyre, we hear gunfire. Sporadic, but gunfire nevertheless. Let's just go a little bit further, I say, knowing really we should be turning back. Near to the deserted city centre, we see an Israeli tank trundling fast up a side street, away from us, thank God, firing as it goes, a sound rumbling around the empty streets like thunder. That finally spooks me. Let's get out of here, I say. Ali needs no encouragement. He tries a U-turn, but in his haste and panic, reverses over a pavement, almost into a ditch. His real wheels are spinning in the air. We are stuck. For God's sake, Ali, I cry. I think I probably swore. We scramble out of the car and the three of us have a go at pushing it out of the ditch, but it's hopeless, no matter how hard we strain. I scan the street looking for somewhere to hide. We can't stay by the car exposed like this. Then a dozen armed men emerge from a blitzed building across the street and run towards us. Two others remain on the pavement, covering their backs. I think, not for the first time that day, Jesus, we're really in the shit now. My fears are needless. Wordlessly, these modern-day good Samaritans haul our taxi out of its rut and onto the road. Go, 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 they mouth and wave as they melt back into the alleyways out of sight and sound of the Israelis. And go we do, quickly. We reckon our rescuers were Palestinians. 
remnants maybe of the PLO pushed out of Lebanon by Israel a few months back. A few days later, this is March 1985, two Lebanese guys in a CBS camera crew are killed in the same area by Israeli tank fire, even though their car's clearly marked as a press vehicle. We're with them, but having had a recent skirmish with the tank, decided not to follow them down that lane. Fate's fickle hand. Incidents like these may sound dramatic, and I guess they are, but they're pretty common and make for lively tales in the bar of the Commodore in the evening. Dear Ali has had more than his fair share of scares, but the incident I'm going to share with you now is probably the closest he's come to death and made us a shade less gung-ho on future forays around Lebanon in search of a story. We hear of fighting in a part of West Beirut close to the invisible dividing line between Christian and Muslim territory. So we set off from the Commodore Hotel to see what we can find. Ali drives us towards the area where we think it's all kicking off. He turns into a street, breaks, then mutters something about going back, wrong turning, he mumbles. Alarm in his voice, must go back, must go. Then there are two agitated Christian phalange militiamen running towards us, shouting and pointing their guns at the car. The engine stalls and cuts out as Ali tries a frantic reverse. They yank open Ali's door, jab their AK-47s into his stomach and unleash a torrent of guttural Arabic abuse, hatred in their eyes. Ali, a Muslim of course, has driven into a Christian-held area. The temptation to call him an effing dick is almost irresistible, but territories change hands constantly and it's hard to tell who's got what. I fumble for my Falange Party press pass, scared, but careful not to hand them the Hezbollah Muslim pass by mistake. I had four different passes from four different militias. One of the gunmen gestures angrily that we should stay put as they drag Ali out of the car towards a war-damaged building once someone's home, spewing vitriol as they go. Ali, limp, submissive, glances back with terror in his eyes. They disappear inside. Their intentions are obvious. Now I'm not a brave guy, but I have to do something. I get out of the car and run into the building. They've got a gun at Ali's head, and they're pretty fired up, raging at him, screaming what sound like the foulest insults. No, no, I shout, waving my phalange press pass. He dies, one screams back at me. Take me to your commandment, I shout. Take me now, commandant, commandant, journalist, journalist. They pause, loudly argue amongst themselves, then drag Ali back to the car and push him roughly into his driver's seat. One of the militiamen gets in beside him, presses his gun to Ali's neck and orders him to follow the other fighter in his jeep. I'm surprised Ali can drive at all. Half a mile or so and we reach what must be their base, a small mini-fortress at the top of a hill. The crew stay in the car. Ali is dragged up the steps and into an office where a uniformed officer takes no notice of us for at least five minutes, ostentatiously filling in some sort of form. Yes, he wearily asks the soldiers. They launch into a loud explanation, point at Ali, angrily prodding him with their guns. The officer turns to me and says, Your driver must be a spy, and so he will be taken outside and executed, shot. Ali flinched and begins to shake. I protest, emphasising I'm the holder of a Falange press pass and mention that I had met Bashir Jemael, their leader once, on a boat to Juni, a Christian town on the coast. I think that's what did it. He says nothing, but sits down and begins to write on a headed piece of notepaper. He hands me the paper. It's in Arabic, but I can see my name in English on it. 
The officer says we can go now and take the Muslim pig with you. What's in this note, I ask? He gives me an evil smile. It says, do not kill this driver when he is with the journalist Vernon Mann. What happens if he's not with me, I ask? He puts two fingers to his head and with his thumb pulls an imaginary trigger. I give the note to Ali. He manages a weak but grateful smile. We give him the rest of the day off. He could probably do with a week. But next morning, just after dawn, he's parked outside the Commodore Hotel, awaiting instructions. He's even brought us some oranges. What a star. Lebanon suffers two massive car bombings in October 1983. One, a truck with 2,000 pounds of explosives, hit a US Marine base and kills 241 men. In the other attack the same day, 58 French paratroopers lose their lives. There are smaller attacks against the Israelis. Teenagers drive cars into their patrols. After one such incident, a Beirut TV channel shows a video of the young bomber explaining why he was going to do what he did. In front of him on the desk in Arabic is the name of the party who'd sent him on his mission of death, the Syrian Nationalist Socialist Party. They're having a conference downtown, said Ali. Next morning, he drives us through the streets to the small hotel where the event is being held. As ever, we have to persuade the armed guards outside to take us to the armed guards inside. We're questioned by their security chief. He speaks good English. What do we want? We say, nobody outside Islam can really understand why a young man could willingly kill himself as a boy at the day before. It would be enlightening for us and our viewers, I say, to get some idea of what drives him and the others to sacrifice their lives. Would it be possible, maybe, for us to film at their training camp and talk to some of them? To our amazement, he doesn't dismiss our request out of hand. But first he says, you must interview our leader. We didn't want to, but have no choice. He goes to a back room and appears with an elderly, clerical-looking guy, beard and colourful cloak. We record something like half an hour's rambling monologue in Arabic. I ask no questions, just nod every now and then, and smile sympathetically. At last, the leader runs out of things to say and leaves. The security chief goes to make some calls to the training camp. We sit and wait and realise what we might be letting ourselves in for and what the script for the suicide car bomber's training camp might sound like. Today, in the picturesque Lebanese mountains, Mohammed is having his first driving lesson. This is the steering wheel. This is the accelerator. This is the brake. But you won't need that, Mohammed. And this is where you put the bomb. We collapse in fits of laughter, barely suppressed, as the security chief comes back into the room. The good news, he smiles, and our hearts sink. The good news is that I think your idea is a really good one. The world does need to know more about what motivates our martyrs. Oh God, I thought, we're actually going to have to do this. The bad news is that they will shoot you all if you get within a hundred metres of the camp. And if they see me with you, they'll kill me too. Phew. Back to the bar then. And my apologies to any Muslim friends or listeners who might find this story offensive. It wasn't intended to be. This is Vernon Mann. Tune in to the next episode for another tale from Lebanon. Lebanon.